Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is a professor of psychology at Stanford University. She's been devoted to research on achievement and success over the last few decades. In her research summary, she states, my work bridges on developmental psychology, social psychology, and personality psychology, and examines the self-conceptions or mindsets people use to structure the self and guide their behavior. Dweck is, a widely, is widely renowned for studying and popularizing the idea of a growth mindset, which you will read about in the text that follows. Her latest book is titled Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. Dweck is also helped pioneer the software program called Brainology that is used in schools to help develop a growth mindset. All right, and so now what we're going to do is enter the text called The Secret to Raising Smart Kids. Hint, don't tell your kids they are. They are what? Well, we got to go back to the title where it says The Secret to Raising Smart Kids. So the secret is we don't tell them they're smart. More than three decades of research shows that a focus on effort, not intelligence or ability, is the key to success in school or life. And I, I talk to so many teachers, and all of them say, if kids will just try, they're going to pass my class. So it's that effort, not the accuracy or the intelligence or even the ability to do the work. It's that they give it the, the good effort that it requires. A brilliant student, Jonathan, sailed through grade school. I bet you know people like this. He completed his assignments easily and routinely earned A's. Jonathan puzzled over why some of his classmates struggled, and his parents told him that he had a special gift. In the seventh grade, however, Jonathan suddenly lost interest in school, refusing to do homework or study for tests. As a consequence, his grades plummeted. His parents tried to boost their son's confidence by assuring him that he was very smart. But their attempts failed to motivate Jonathan, who is a composite drawn for many children. Schoolwork, their son maintained, was boring and pointless. Our society worships talent, and many people assume that possessing superior intelligence or ability along with confidence in that ability, is a recipe for success. In fact, however, more than 30 years of scientific investigation suggests that an overemphasis on intellect or talent leaves people vulnerable to failure, fearful of challenges, and unwilling to remedy their shortcomings. The result plays out in children like Jonathan, who coast through the early grades under the dangerous notion that no effort academic achievement defines them as smart or gifted. Such children hold an implicit belief that intelligence is innate, that it's something they were born with, fixed, that it's something they can't do anything about, making striving to learn seem far less important than being or looking smart. This belief 
also makes them see challenges, mistakes, and even the need to exert effort as threats to their ego rather than as opportunities to improve. And it causes them to lose confidence and motivation when the work is no longer easy for them. Praising children's innate abilities, as Jonathan's parents did, reinforces this mindset, which can also prevent young athletes or people in the workforce or even marriages from living up to their potential. On the other hand, our studies show that teaching people to have a growth mindset, which encourages a focus on effort rather than on intelligence or talent, helps make them into high achievers in school and life. So now we have a new heading. That whole part served as our introduction to the ideas. And as I scan through the text, I see that I've got a heading called The Opportunity of Defeat, which sounds weird. Defeat doesn't sound like an opportunity I want to take into. The next one is called Two Views of Intelligence. And it goes on for a while. The next heading is a couple of pages over about confronting deficiencies. So we're going to confront and maybe attack things that we're not good at. Proper praise, which sounds interesting to me because they were talking about how praising people really didn't work. Then making up your mindset. So that sounds like an action step might be able to do. And then I see that the text ends on page 29. So what I'd like to do for the rest of these segments is to divide them up and just tackle one at a time. And if you have a chance, think through the introduction to this piece. And then in the next segment, we'll address the opportunity of defeat. The opportunity of defeat. I'm reading on page 17 if you'd like to join me. So I'm going to have to look for as my lens as I read this part is how in the world can defeat be an opportunity? And I have to remember that um, Dweck, the researcher that we read about, is writing in first person. So Dweck says, I, I first began to investigate the underpinnings of human motivation. So what's underneath that? What's causing that? And how people persevere after setbacks. As a psychology graduate at Yale University in the 1960s, animal experiences, experiments by psychologists Martin Seligman and Stephen Mayer and Richard Solomon of the University of Pennsylvania had shown that after repeated failures, most animals conclude that a situation is hopeless and beyond their control. After such experience, the researchers found, an animal often remains passive, even when it can affect change, a state they called learned helplessness. I don't want to learn that. <laughs> People can learn to be helpless too, but not everyone reacts to setbacks this way. I wondered, why do some students give up when they encounter difficulty? whereas others who are no more skilled continue to strive and learn. One answer I soon discovered lay in the people's beliefs about why they had failed. 
Okay, so now what we're going to be doing is changing our purpose for reading to think about what were those beliefs. In particularly, in particular, attributing poor performance to a lack of ability depresses motivation more than does the belief that lack of effort is to blame. In 1972, when I taught a group of elementary and middle school children who displayed helpless behavior in a school that a lack of effort, rather than lack of ability, led to their mistakes on math problems. The kids learned to keep trying when the problems got tough. They also solved many of the problems even in the face of difficulty. Another group of helpless children who were simply rewarded for their success on easy problems did not improve their ability to solve hard math problems. These experiments were an early indication that a focus on effort can help resolve helplessness and engender success. Subsequent studies, so now she's telling us even more data that proves her hypothesis, revealed that most persistent students do not ruminate about their own failure much at all, but instead think of mistakes as problems to be solved. At the University of Illinois in the 1970s, I, along with my then graduate student Carol Diener, asked 65th graders to think out loud why they solved very different, difficult pattern recognition problems. Some students reacted defensively to mistakes, denigrating their skills with comments such as, I never did have a good memory, and their problem-solving strategies deteriorated, got worse. Others, meanwhile, so now we've got the contrast, so we've got the comparative contrast. Others, meanwhile, focused on fixing errors and honing their skills. One advised himself, I should slow down and try to figure this out. Two school children were particularly inspiring. One, in the wake of a difficulty, pulled up his chair, rubbed his hands together, and smacked his lips and said, I love a challenge. The other, also confronting the hard problems, looked up at the experimenter and approvingly declared, I was hoping this would be informative. Predictively, the students with this attitude outperformed their cohorts in these studies. Two views of intelligence. So now what you're going to be doing is listening and thinking about what are these two views and why are they significant? Several years later, I developed a broader theory of what separates the two general classes of learners, helpless versus mastery-oriented. I realized that these different types of students not only explain their failures differently, but they also hold different theories of intelligence. The helpless ones believe that intelligence is a fixed trait. You only have a certain amount, and that's that. I call this fixed mindset. Mistakes crack their self-confidence because they attribute errors to a lack of ability, which they feel powerless to change. They avoid challenges because challenges make mistakes more likely, and looking smart, less so. 
Like Jonathan, such children shun the effort in the belief that having to work hard means they're dumb. Now here we have the other side. Let's see how it's different. The mastery-oriented children, on the other hand, think intelligence is malleable. That's like a metal that you can change the shape of and can be developed through education and hard work. They want to learn above all else. After all, if you believe that you can expand your intellectual skills, you want to do just that. Because slip-ups stem from a lack of effort, not ability, they can be remedied by more effort. Challenges are energizing rather than intimidating. They offer opportunities to learn. Students with a growth mindset, we predicted, were destined for greater academic success and were quite likely to outperform their counterparts. We validated these expectations in a study published in early 2007. Psychologist Lisa Blackwell of Columbia University and Callie A. Srezinowski of Stanford University and I monitored 373 students for two years during the transition to junior high school when the work gets more difficult and the grading more stringent to determine how their mindsets might affect their math grades. At the beginning of the seventh grade, we assess the students' mindsets by asking them to agree or disagree with statements like, your intelligence is something very basic about you that you can't really change. We then assess beliefs about other aspects of learning and look to see what was happening to their grades. As we predicted, the students with the growth mindset felt that learning was more important goal in school than getting good grades. In addition, they held hard work in high regard, believing that the more you labored at something, the better you would become at it. They understood that even geniuses have to work hard for great accomplishments. Confronted by a setback such as a disappointing test grade, students with a growth mindset said they would study harder or try a different strategy for mastering the material. The students who held a fixed mindset, however, were concerned about looking smart with little regard for learning. They had negative views about effort, believing that having to work hard at something was a sign of low ability. They thought that a person with talent or intelligence did not need to work hard to do well. Attributing a bad grade to their own lack of ability, those with a fixed mindset said that they would study less in the future, try never to take that subject again, and consider cheating on future tasks. Ouch. Such divergent outlooks had a dramatic impact on performance. Remember how they talked about looking at grades? At the start of junior high, the math achievement test scores of the students with a growth mindset were comparable to those of student... I have to read that again. At the start... Oh, there we go. At the start of junior high, the math achievement scores of the students with a growth mindset were comparable to those students who displayed a fixed mindset. So that means they're starting out the same. But 
as the work became more difficult, the students with a growth mindset showed greater persistence. As a result, their math grades overtook those of the other students. And by the end of the first semester, and the gap between the two groups continued to widen during the two years we followed them. Along with Columbia psychologist Heidi Grant, I found a similar relation between the mindset and achievement in a 2003 study of 128 Columbia freshmen, pre-med students, who were enrolled in a challenging general chemistry course. Although all the students cared about grades, the ones who earned the best grades were those who placed high premium on learning rather than showing that they were smart in chemistry. The focus on learning strategies, effort, and persistence paid off for these students. Now we are looking at the next chapter section called Confronting Deficiencies. A belief in fixed intelligence also makes people less willing to admit errors or confront and remedy their deficiencies in school, at work, in their social relationships. In a study published in 1999 of 168 freshmen entering the University of Hong Kong, where all instruction and coursework are in English, three Hong Kong colleagues and I found that students with a growth mindset who scored poorly on their English proficiency exam were far more inclined to take a remedial English course than were low-scoring students with a fixed mindset. The students with a stagnant view of intelligence were presumably unwilling to admit their deficit and thus passed up the opportunity to correct it. A fixed mindset can similarly hamper communication and progress in the workplace by leading managers and employees to discourage or ignore constructive criticism and advice. Research by psychologists Peter Heslin and Don Vandewal of Southern Methodist University and Gary Latham of the University of Toronto shows that managers who have fixed mindset are less likely to seek or welcome feedback from their employees than are managers with a growth mindset. Presumably, managers with a growth mindset see themselves as work in progress and understand that they need feedback to improve whereas the bosses with a fixed mindset are more likely to see criticism as reflecting their underlying level of competence. Assuming that other people are not capable of changing either, executives with a fixed mindset are also less likely to mentor their underlings. But after Heslin, Vanderwaal, and Latham gave managers a tutorial on the value and principles of the growth mindset, Supervisors became more willing to coach their employees and gave more useful advice. Mindset can affect the quality and longevity of personal relationships as well through people's willingness or unwillingness to deal with difficulties. Those with a fixed mindset are less likely than those with a growth mindset to broach problems in their relationships and try to solve them, according to a 2006 study I conducted with psychologist Lara Camarath of Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. Do you notice how she's doing this research all over the world? After all, if you think that human personality traits are more or less fixed, relationship repair seems largely futile. Individuals who believe people 
can change and grow, however, are more con- confident that confronting concerns in their relationships will lead to resolutions. I'm beginning this section on page 24 called Proper Praise. And I'm remembering that section that we read about Jonathan that was always told how wonderful he was and he didn't do well in long term. How we transmit a growth mindset to our children. How do we do this? One way is by telling stories about achievements that result from hard work. For instance, talking about math geniuses who were more or less born that way put students in a fixed mindset. But descriptors of great mathematicians who fell in love with math and developed amazing skills engenders a growth mindset. Our studies have shown people also communicate mindsets through praise, although many, if not most, parents believe that they should build up a child by telling him or her how brilliant and talented he or she is. Our research suggests that this is misguided. In studies involving several hundred fifth graders, published in 1998, for example, Columbia psychologist Claudia M. Mueller and I gave children questions from a nonverbal IQ test. After the first 10 problems, on which most children did fairly well, we praised them. We praised some of them for their intelligence. Wow, that's a really good score. You must be smart at this. We commended others for their effort. Wow, that's a really good score. You must have worked really hard. We found that intelligence praise encouraged a fixed mindset more often than pats on the back for effort. Those congratulated for their intelligence, for example, shied away from the challenging assignment. They wanted an easy one instead. Far more often than the kids applauded for their effort. Most of those lauded for their hard work wanted the difficult problem set from which they would learn. When we gave everyone hard problems anyway, those praised for being smart became discouraged doubting their ability and their scores. Even on an easier problem set we gave them afterward, declined as compared with their previous results on equivalent problems. In contrast, students praised for their effort did not lose confidence when faced with the harder questions and their performance improved markedly on the easier problems that followed. All right, here we are at the end of it. So we're talking about the whole thing is to figure out how do you raise smart kids. And this culmination is about how you make up your mindset. And it begins on page 26. In addition to encouraging a growth mindset through praise for effort, parents and teachers can help children by providing explicit instruction regarding the mind as a learning machine. Blackwell says Nenwiski and I recently designed an eight-session workshop for 91 students whose math grades were declining in their first year of junior high. 48 of the students received instruction in study skills only, whereas others attended a combination of study skills sessions and classes in which they learned about 
the growth mindset and how to apply it in schoolwork. In the growth mindset classes, students read and discussed an article, You Can Grow Your Brain. They were taught that the brain is like a muscle that gets stronger with use and that learning prompts neurons in the brain to grow new connections. From such instruction, many students began to see themselves as agents of their own brain development. Students who had been disruptive or bored sat still and took note. One particularly unruly boy looked up during the discussion and said, You mean I don't have to be dumb? As the semester progressed, the math grades of the kids who learned only study skills continued to decline, whereas those of the students given the growth mindset training stopped falling and began to bounce back to their former levels. Despite being unaware that there were two types of instruction, teachers reported noticing significant motivational changes in 27 of the percent in the growth mindset workshop as compared with only 9% of students in the controlled group. One teacher wrote, your workshop has already had an effect. L, our truly, our unruly male student, who never puts any extra effort and often doesn't turn in homework on time, actually stayed up late to finish an assignment early so that I could review it and give him a chance to revise it. He earned a B plus. He had been getting C's and lower. Other researchers have replicated our results. Psychologist Catherine Good, then at Columbia, and Joshua Aronson and Michael Inchley of New York University reported in 2003 that a growth mindset workshop raised the math and English achievement test scores of seventh graders. In a 2002 study, Aronson Good, then a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin, and their colleagues found that students began to enjoy their schoolwork more, value it more highly, and get better grades as a result of training that fostered a growth mindset. We have now encapsulated such instruction in an interactive computer program called Brainology. Its six modules teach students about the brain, what it does, and how to make it work better. In a virtual brain lab, users can click on brain regions to determine their functions or nerve endings to see how connections form when people learn. Users can also advise virtual students with problems as a way of practicing how to handle schoolwork difficulties. Additionally, users keep an online journal of their study practices. New York City seventh graders who tested a pilot version of Brainology told us that the program had changed their view of learning and how to promote it. One wrote, my favorite thing from Brainology is the neurons part. When I, when you learn something, there are connections and they keep growing. I always picture them when I'm in school. Um, that little thing that said sick, S-I-C, you notice that the student wrote the letter U for the word U, and S-I-C means that they know, the Carol knows that it's a mistake, and she was just recording it exactly as the student had written it. A teacher said of the students who use the program, they offer to practice, study, 
and take notes or pay attention to assure that connections will be made. Teaching children such information is not just a ploy to get them to study. People do differ intelligence, talent, and ability, and yet research is converging on the conclusion that great accomplishment and even what we call genius is typically the result of years of passion and dedication and not something that flows naturally from a gift. Mozart, Edison, Curie, Darwin, Cezanne were not simply born with talent. They cultivated it through tremendous and sustained effort. Similarly, hard work and discipline contribute much more to school achievement than IQ does. Such lessons apply to almost every human endeavor. For instance, many young athletes value talent more than hard work and have consequently become unteachable. Similarly, many people accomplish little in their jobs without constant praise and encouragement to maintain their motivation. If we foster a growth mindset in our homes and schools, however, we will give our children the tools to succeed in their pursuits and to become responsible employees and citizens.